This is the Endangered Species Podcast, the podcast by aspiring men for aspiring men. We gather here with one purpose every week to get the godly man off the endangered species list. From Phoenix, Arizona, I'm your host, Sean Vollendorf. You know, I've spent a lot of time on college campuses. In 2009, I walked into a room in a fraternity house to meet a college dude. It was afternoon, and to be honest, I was expecting to find him in bed or playing Call of Duty or Mario Kart. Instead, I walk in on this kid who's surrounded by this great big pile of books. None of them were for school. Charles Tremendous Jones used to say that five years from today, you will be the same person you are except for the people you meet and the books you read. If that's the case, Alex Dyer is a different and deeper man every time I see him. After living on the other side of the world and traveling the U.S. extensively for work, Alex has read and related his way to godly man status. Alex lives a fascinating life. He travels the country walking onto the land of farmers and ranchers to buy their cattle. On the side, he's got a thriving income real estate business. He's a dad and more importantly, a husband. Alex is a man's man and he's a God's man, if I can put it that way. I think you're gonna love this episode. Alex, you've got a really cool uh, career path in my opinion. And I, for one, find the business you're in fascinating. Talk about what you do and how you got into it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So technically, I am a supply chain manager for a a company that moves cattle. Um, In reality, I am basically a cattle buyer. Um, So my job is that I am all over the country on farms and ranches, um, and I buy cattle from farmers and ranchers. And I take those cattle, send them to feed yards, um, send them to different pasture ground, and then grow those cattle up to a certain weight and then sell them to larger companies who end up turning those animals into steak. Um, And then the company that I work for, we will process some of those ourselves and sell that beef directly to consumers and retailers and restaurants. Um, So it's, it's super unique. I get to work with both you know, your mom and pop, small town farmer, rancher, all the way up to fortune 500 companies. Um, and, uh, man, it's a, it's been, a, it's been a lot of fun. It's taken me all over the country in the past eight or nine months. And I've, I've really enjoyed what I, what I do. So are you going to auctions or are you literally just walking out on the property and making offers on cattle? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, a little bit of both. I do go to a decent number of livestock auctions. Um, those are fun, man. That's a, that's a cultural experience for sure. Just sitting in on on one of those auctions. Um, I I go to a decent number of those. There's quite a few auctions that happen online now and over the phone, but a lot of what I do is actually going out directly to farms. Um, most of the time I'm not just cold walking onto the farm, uh, you know, with zero experience, having met them or anything like that. Uh, but it's people that I've gotten in contact with and I've asked them if I could come out, meet them, see their livestock, you know, kind of drive through everything and see it. Um, and then giving them a bid on their cattle if I think they'll fit our program. So I'm all over, I'm all over the Midwest, uh, in my truck, Missouri, Kansas, Oklahoma, Nebraska. And then I've been up to North Dakota multiple times, uh, been up to Montana a handful of times. You know, we bought cattle out of Idaho, California, New Mexico, some on the East Coast. So, man, I've been a little bit everywhere in the past eight or nine months. 
That's really cool, man. I'm sure it's way more nuanced than this, but I, I think of like stock traders, you know, I watch these guys who day trade and, you know, just trying to make massive amounts of money on tiny little margins inching up in, in a matter of seconds and all this is, is it similar to that or is it uh, more predictable or what do you think? Uh, it's not as predictable as I wish it was. It would be a lot less stressful if it was more predictable. And I mean, I work with some guys who they went to college on livestock judging scholarships, literally have spent decades of their lives just looking at animals, walking into a ring and then telling you like the good, the bad and the ugly about that animal. Um, I did not grow up doing that. I did not grow up on a ranch uh, or on a farm. And so, man, I'm I'm improving, uh, but I still have a a long way to go in terms of my ability to look at something and tell you, Hey, this one is going to have issues putting on weight because of these six factors. Uh, I'm still working on that. Well, the skeptic in me thinks there have, you know, there have to be cheaters out there. Like I look at the tour de France a few years ago and some guys were exposed, I think, uh, or at least suspected of having these tiny motors that they were putting in the frames of their bike that that helped like these batteries, battery driven motors that helped just like a little bit. Like you can't you still got a pedal and everything. But I'm sitting there going, man, are there are there guys like, you know, throwing rocks into the stomachs of some of these cattle to increase their weights like not, not rocks know. in the stomach. But yeah, 100 percent. I mean, one of the most common things that we'll run into is um, guys will feed a whole bunch of feed and water to the animals like the day before we show up to load them on a truck. There's some things you can look for to to try to mitigate that and make sure that that didn't happen. But oh yeah, there's probably like in every industry, there are a lot of cheaters out there for sure. I believe it, man. I believe it. I want to change gears just a little bit because one of the things I noticed about you when I first met you, and I've, I've just always admired this, is you're a reader. And the reason that sticks out to me is that most guys are not. <laughs> you walk into, for example, a, a Christian bookstore. Uh, I mean, it's 80% books for women. They target women. And, and the thing is, I don't blame them because those are the ones that move. Those are the books that'll go off the shelves because women read. Why don't guys read? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think a lot of it is because for so long in our education system, reading was something that was just a forced requirement. And so it was something that was never associated with one, like a, like a pleasurable activity. Like I want to do this on my own. It was, Hey, you have to read X number of chapters for this class, or you need to study, you know, this book in order to pass the exam. And I don't think that most men uh, were ever introduced to reading as anything more than just purely education. And so that's something that I tell guys that, you know, I heard a lot in college. Um, I was trying to lead guys in my fraternity spiritually while I was in college. And one of the things that a lot of guys would ask me is how do I, I want to be a reader. I think most men recognize that there is value in reading. I think most men just don't take the time to do it. And they would say, Hey, how do I become a reader? And the biggest thing I told them was, man, start by reading something you want to read. Like, don't just go and go, okay, what's the next 
you know, spiritual development book or business development book, but like what, what interests you? Like, go read that. Do you like science fiction? Read that. Do you want to read, you know, a story about World War II? Read that. Like just getting in the habit of reading in general, I think works that muscle, builds that skill. Um, and so, yeah, I think that when guys discover reading for its own sake and not just for education. Um, I think, I think that changes things. That was something that my parents did for me that I'm very grateful for was, especially when I was younger, they let me choose what I wanted to read. Um, and so I got to kind of go down these different paths of what interested me. And that just got me interested in reading in general. Yeah. I remember even when, when my own sons were in high school, I would actually pay them to read. <laughs> I wanted them so badly to, to discover the joy of reading. And, you know, we kind of had to agree on the book in retrospect, I probably should have done what you recommend, you know, like just find some pleasure reading and, uh, I'll even pay you for that, but just find stuff that you like just to develop a, a love for the habit itself. Is that, is that how you developed a love for reading? Do you, would you go back all the way to your parents? I would. Yeah, absolutely. I think they did a great job of letting me pick what I wanted to read when I was younger. I think it was that. And then they also, before I could read, or maybe when I was young and reading was pretty difficult and a fairly arduous task, they would read to my sisters and me at night. And so I, I very distinctly remember we read through the Chronicles of Narnia series, which honestly, if you're a guy wanting to develop the habit of reading, that's a great place to start. That's one of the best series of books I, I think ever written. Um, and they're, it's an easy read. It's exciting. Um, but they would read to us that they read us things like the boxcar children. I remember that. Yeah. But yeah, I would say it was my parents both reading to us and then also just letting me kind of pick my path. Oh, I just remember coming into your room in college from time to time and it'd just be like walls of books. <laughs> it's like this guy loves his books, man. And and it stood out because, you know, the room on the left, guys are playing Call of Duty. The room on the right, guys are still asleep at 1.30 in the afternoon. And here's this guy who's buried in his books. And I just always admired about you, that about you. And, and I wanted to ask about that. I, I think, man, I'm worried about these guys who are upcoming because there's so much knowledge and, and so much spiritual growth, to be honest, available and mentoring available to us through books. I tell guys all the time, it's like, man, you can spend time with anybody in the world if they wrote a book. You can spend time with a president. You can spend time with some uh, spiritual leader or pastor you admire. I, I remember when I was 25, I read uh, the autobiography of Billy Graham. It was over 600 pages long, man. It was an unbelievable, uh, unbelievably thick book. But the book was called Just As I Am, and he just told kind of his life story. And I remember just being fascinated and inspired and compelled to to learn more about men like him and it was just cool to see you doing that at 18 and 19 when frankly other guys were not i i know you lived overseas uh for a time and i just i gotta think you know that in a lot of ways that time developed you uh as a godly man talk about that a little bit sure yeah you're right i spent four years living in india um and it was a very refined 
defining time in my life. You know, as I think about my manhood journey, um, there's a lot of parts to that. I think one of the most influential times for me was college. College is where I met Jesus for the first time. You know, I had grown up in church. I knew a lot of things that were true, um, but I didn't have a relationship with Jesus. My, my time in, in high school and even before that was very much defined by Sunday mornings belonged to church and to Jesus and the rest of the time belonged to Alex. And I was going to do whatever I wanted to do. I got into college and several things happened, ultimately culminating with um, me beginning to follow Jesus really for the first time and having that relationship with him. And he gripped my heart um, and became the Lord of my life and, and completely changed the course of my life. And so I think in college, God really had me on that path of, of godly manhood. And what does it look like to grow into being a godly man. But I think what India did for me and working on a team there, I was there with a, a student ministry and worked on a team with, you know, 10 to 15 other Americans in a country with, you know, over a billion people. And so I worked really closely with this small group of people. And I think what India did is it really helped refine and sort of smooth out some of those sharper edges of my, of my manhood. You know, I, I think before in college and then even the first couple of years in India, uh, maybe even all the way through India, um, I lacked some in the, uh, quite a bit, not just some in the emotional intelligence area. And like, I knew a lot of things that were true, but I didn't know how to communicate those in a way that it would be effective. And I felt that like knowing truth was the most important thing, regardless of the delivery, of that truth. And so my experience overseas being on a team, I think really helped me kind of learn that component of emotional intelligence, which has helped me in my marriage, which has helped me in my career. Um, and I imagine will continue helping me through the rest of my life. Um, and then also I think it really just, it, it was hard. I mean, living in another country is a, is a difficult thing. And I think that godly men, grow out of their experiences and doing difficult things um, when there are headwinds moving against them. And so in living in another country in another culture with a different language and a different set of values, and that's hard, that's not an easy thing. Um, but it was good for me to get out of my comfort zone and spend three or four years doing and, and hard not things. eating steak. <laughs> Funny though, because I tell people like most of what I ate in India was vegetarian. Uh, just because that was what's available. Now I am in the beef business. So there's obviously some irony there. Um, but were my wife and I to go back to India, I don't think I would have much of an issue going back to like 90% vegetarian diet. I love steak, but man, Indian food is incredible. Um, my wife and I eat it probably a couple times a month. It's, it's our favorite place where we live, the, the Indian place. And so I think I'd be all right. I, I lived in India six months one time. Here's how much I would agree with you in loving Indian food. I gained 28 pounds in six months. <laughs> Most people come back from India and you're like, bro, eat some food, man. You look like you haven't eaten in years. And I came back fat. <laughs> I, You know, I also remember when I was living over there, I knew some of the same people you did. And a couple of the guys that were living over over there had like this undercover uh like steak guy or meat guy that they could get red meat from and uh it was like their beef guy and 
it was like he was like you know selling contraband. <laughs> it was hilarious. It's there if you know the right person to talk to, and they'll take you into the back room. And yeah, it's a it's a shady deal for sure. And you're never quite sure is this steak or is this water buffalo? What exactly am I eating? Well, I love what you said about headwinds because I would agree with you 100. percent It's it is in the trials and the challenging times of life that I think a lot of times guys in their spiritual development, in their walk with God, that's when they take hold of godly masculinity. And so the idea of going and living in another country, trying to speak a foreign language, try, you know, eating food that you're not used to, in some cases people don't like it and don't take to it, obviously. Um, I think most people just avoid it. They go, ah, that's something that's just too hard. I can't see myself ever doing it. Um, it's interesting to me that God took you halfway around the world to grow your emotional intelligence. I've never heard you say that. That's that's really fascinating. I I had a friend tell me one time he didn't think that someone's spiritual maturity could excel past their emotional intelligence, that really those two things have to grow together. Would you agree with that? I, I think absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think emotional intelligence is one of the areas of godly masculinity that we probably overlook the most frequently. Um, and I think we see examples, especially in the New Testament, of guys like Paul, who, man, they had a super high degree of emotional intelligence. They knew their audience, you know, and you can even tell that from Paul's various letters, the way that he speaks to people changes depending on who he's talking to, right? And, and he will be, you know, either more direct or more comforting and loving, depending on what the need of the audience is. And so I think what I realized in India is trying to club somebody over the head with this stick of truth is not an effective means of, of winning people to the kingdom. Um, and, and just, you know, and, and being married has, I think, furthered that, that, knowing the right answer does not mean that you are going to win the argument, even viewing it as a win, viewing the argument as a win lose situation. You're already, you've already lost, um, right. That you can win the argument and lose the person. And it's sort of all for naught in that case. And so, yeah, I think emotional intelligence is super important and definitely overlooked. How long have you been married now, Alex? Uh, almost five years. This February will be five wow. years. That's, that's awesome, man. Are there any things that you would go back to yourself on your wedding day, pull yourself aside and say, Hey dude, here, I got some advice for you. <laughs> yeah, it's uh no, it's a, there are a lot of things for sure. Um, probably the biggest <laughs> thing is that going into marriage, my wife and I, we did we did pre-engagement counseling with a, an older godly couple before we even got engaged. We did premarital counseling before we got married. One of the things that we heard in both of those instances was that your, your family background, your family of origin plays a huge role in shaping who you are even more than you realize. And so heading into marriage, I knew that intellectually, like, you know, like I know that the moon is real. I can see it, but I've never been there. Right? I, I knew that it was a true thing, um, but I definitely did not give it enough credit for impacting who I am and, and who my wife is, and then therefore how we would handle 
conflict, how we would handle money, how we would handle time, uh, how we would handle parenting. And I think I would go back on my wedding day and remind myself like, hey, this is going to play an even bigger role in your marriage than you could possibly realize. And so listen more than you talk. Um, like be, be better at listening and, and seeking understanding than trying to express your opinion or your thought on something. Well, man, I've been married 23 years and that's just good advice for me to hear today. <laughs> Listen more than you talk, bro. <laughs> man, what's your experience now? Do, are, do you think men are, you know, men out there in the world, are they spiritually hungry? Are they spiritually interested? Uh, and, and just people have the wrong approach with them. And the reason I ask is I just see more women respond to the gospel. I see more women that plug into Bible studies, that attend church, et cetera. What's your feel yeah. for that? I think men want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. Um, I think that's why men get sucked into, um, whether it's memorizing sports stats, you know, um, or whether that's video games or any number of things, it's, it's because it, it sort of attempts to fill this need of being a part of this bigger thing than just yourself. And I think that's a desire men have. I think that historically we as believers have not done a great job of sharing the gospel through that lens. I think we've approached the gospel both to men and women. Um, but this is especially true to men of, Hey, the gospel is what, uh, saves you from sin and gives you eternal life, right? It takes all the bad things you've done and they're nailed to the cross with Jesus. And then you're good to go, right? You've, you've got a relationship with him now when the gospel right. is so much bigger than that. It's that it's this good news that God is redeeming all of creation back to himself, that he's taking everything that was wrong and broken in the world and he's making it right and he's making it new and yes forgiveness of sins um, and a relationship with him is absolutely a part of that but the gospel is an invitation into god's story and it's an invitation into something bigger than just living for yourself and i think if if we as believers as if we as the church did a better job of focusing on on that aspect of what the gospel is, I, I think we would see more men who are interested. Um, you know, you can look back throughout history and see how, you know, at the advent of the second world war, men were showing up, lining up to serve, right? They wanted to be a part of something bigger than themselves. There was this call to action. Um, and I think that's where, where the church is lacking is a call to men for the gospel. That's an interesting take, bud. So, so would you think then that most churches are asking too little of men? Cause my, my impression sometimes is all oh, guys feel like it's too big a commitment, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, actually, maybe it's the opposite. Maybe we weren't, maybe we aren't casting a big enough vision to men come be involved in this adventure uh, with God through the church. Yeah. I think that if the church were to paint a, an accurate vision of what the gospel is, of who God is, of what he is doing, I think men would be lining up to be a part of that. I think you, I think when you cast vision 
for men, they want to be involved in that. Hey, how do I, I'm in on that thing, right? I want to be a part of that. Um, and so I think, yeah, I think the church needs to do a better job of, of calling men to something higher. And I don't think that looks like, hey, we're asking you to, you know, be involved in these three studies and in this home group. I think what it is, is from whether it's the pulpit or whether it's through the context of community, doing a good job of explaining all of what God's doing and the story of the gospel from Genesis to Revelation, how he's making all things new. And I think with that, you'll have men who say, hey, that's incredible. I I want to be a part of that. What do I do? What do I do? How do I get involved in that? And that's when we can start talking about, hey, come be a part of this Bible study with me. Or, hey, let's start getting into the word together in the mornings and things like that. And could some of that be integrating God and godly principles into your work? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's something that God has been teaching me over the last four or five years is just that this sacred secular divide of, Hey, I've got church and community group and Bible study on, you know, that's part of my life. And then the other part of my life is, is my career. And those things don't really have anything to do with each other. Tim Keller um, wrote a book. I think it's called, it's called every good endeavor by Tim Keller. And I would highly recommend it for anybody who, for any godly man who, um, is in the workforce, is in the business world. I think that's a must read. Um, I think God wants to be a part of every aspect of a man's life, his home life, his career. I think it transforms, the gospel transforms all of those things that all work is valuable. All work when done from the proper perspective is worship. Um, and all of it is a part of what it looks like to steward the resources that God has given us, whether that's time, talent, treasure, God has given every man and woman um, specific skills that they're, that they're called to steward. Um, and that's absolutely true in the context of work. Man, I, I don't want to let you go before we ask you a question that we try to ask all our guests. We have a lot of listeners age 18, really to 45, but we got a bunch of college guys that, that listen to the pod. And so we always try to ask our guests, and I'll ask you, Alex, if you could go back and talk to your 21-year-old self, if you could give yourself advice, what would you say to you? I kind of referenced this earlier, but I would remind myself to listen more than I speak. Um, I just think that piece of advice changes so many things. When you really seek to understand what someone is saying rather than just get your point across, um, you know, whether it's because I was surrounded by just incredibly godly men in college or living in a foreign country in a different culture, or now trying to buy cattle from ranchers who have been doing this all their lives. I just, I don't feel like I can ever do enough listening. Um, one of my favorite passages of scripture is Acts 17. And in Acts 17, Paul finds himself in Athens, he's kind of been run out of a few cities before that. He just sort of ends up in Athens by accident. And he ends up going to this place where philosophers and scholars and scribes would teach and preach. And he gets brought up. These people like put him up there and they say, hey, what is this new teaching that you bring to us? And, and 
he tells the, the first thing he tells the people there is he says, I perceive that in every way you're very religious for as I passed by, as I observed the objects of your worship, I noticed this inscription to the unknown God, right? He tells them, Hey, as I was walking around your city, I saw your temples, I saw your statues. And I saw this one in particular that said to the unknown God. And I think what Paul is doing there is he is observing the culture that he's in and he's connecting with it. And he did that from listening, right? He could have gone up and just immediately launched into, this is who Jesus is. This is what he's done. But instead he connects with his audience by being a really good listener. And I don't feel like I, I still don't feel like I'm a great listener. I definitely don't think 21 year old Alex was a great listener. I think 21 year old Alex was super excited about Jesus and super excited about these new things that I was learning about him. Um, but I did not do a good job of, of listening to people. So I would tell myself to listen more than I speak. Well, man, I feel like I know you, Alex Dyer, and I'll tell you, you're a godly man. You're, you're on the endangered species list and we appreciate you being on the endangered species podcast. It's good to see you, bud. Thanks for your time. Appreciate you having me, Sean. All right. Enormous thanks to our legendary producer, Logan Bonjean. Gentlemen, becoming and staying a godly man is a matter of choice, not chance. Go out today and make the choice to take steps toward godly manhood. Let's get the godly man off the endangered species list. As always, if you like the pod, subscribe, rate, comment, share with other dudes, dads, bros, uncles, and all other such male anthro creatures. When you share this episode with any of the above, you'll have an impact on their lives. See you next Friday.